0: Our Bibles, if you would please, and open them to Revelation chapter 22. And this evening we come to the last of a series of messages where we've been studying about heaven. And we began in the 21st chapter looking at the construction of the New Jerusalem, which is God's holy city. It is the habitation of the Lamb's wife, which is the bride of Christ, and that is his church. And we have examined some of the physical characteristics of the city, the diamond walls, the gates of pearl, streets of gold, and so on. And and we've recognized, of course, that this city that God has prepared for us is unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I do believe that when we uh, get to heaven, we're going to marvel at how wholly inadequate these descriptions of heaven that we have are, uh, in the Bible are. And I'm reminded of 1 Kings chapter 10, when the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon. God had prospered Solomon so that his fame was known throughout the entire world, his wisdom and the prosperity of his kingdom. And so the Queen of Sheba said, I need to see this thing. And so she decided to come to Israel to visit Solomon and see how God had abundantly blessed him. And the Bible tells us in one way, and I'll show you in just a moment, that the sight of Solomon's kingdom took her breath away. In 1 Kings chapter 10, it says, And when the queen of Sheba had seen all of Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built, and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel, and his cupbearers and his ascent, by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. There was no more spirit in her. And that's an interesting phrase because, for your edification, the word spirit here is the same as uh, translated as breath or as wind. And so we would say it this way. When she saw for herself the wealth and the wisdom of Solomon's kingdom, it took her breath away. And then the scripture goes on to say, and she said to the king, it was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom howbeit i believe not the words till i came and mine eyes had seen it and behold the half was not told me thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which i heard happy are thy men happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom now if you take the queen of sheba's reaction to solomon's kingdom and you multiply that a million times over You would only scratch the surface of how wide-eyed and giddy we will be when we finally are able to reach this beautiful city that God has prepared for us called heaven. And I do believe, without doubt, that when we see it, it will take our breath away. And we're going to think, what an infinitesimally small picture that John has given us of the beauty of heaven. And I believe there are a lot of Christians that will wonder when they get there why was I so concerned about all of the things that I tried to accumulate in this life? Why was I so concerned about that? Why didn't I spend more time serving Christ and doing as Jesus said, laying up treasures in heaven? And then I think there will be some that will say, Why was I agonizing over putting my tithe check in the offering plate? And then I like the last part of verse number 8 in which he said, Happy are thy men Happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee and hear thy wisdom. Solomon was, Solomon was adored, he was just constantly people were constantly amazed at his wisdom, and that's really an apt description of what life will be like in the New Jerusalem. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 12:42. He said, "Behold a greater than Solomon is here." And that's one of those amazing statements that Matthew begins with, Behold. And that, if you remember, as we've looked at that word, it means a word that says, Sit up, pay attention. I'm going to say something to you that will totally astound you. And that's what it was when Jesus said, Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Well, Jesus sure didn't look like it when he was here on this earth. He didn't have a home that he could call his own. But for people that have believed in him, and they actually get to see their true home that they have in heaven, their breath will be taken away and they'll stand in awe of him and will serve him. And our happiness there will be more than we can ever imagine. So we've been on this tour going through these verses. Uh, touring around the outside of the city. That's in chapter 21. And then for these past few weeks, we've been in the 22nd chapter, the opening verses, where we're talking about what life is like in the New Jerusalem. And John describes that in these first five verses. He says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, forever and ever. Now those beginning verses are best summed up with the word life. Now if you've ever wondered what is life, this is what we find here in these verses. This is what life is. This is what God intended life to be. And when God created Adam and he put him into the Garden of Eden, life was to be close to God. Life was to walk with him and to talk with him. Life was to be in constant fellowship with God. Jesus says in John 17, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Knowing God is life. And we know when Jesus made that statement, he was saying that the only way of eternal life is to believe in Jehovah God. He is the one and only true God. And Jesus Christ is his servant, as we spoke this morning. He is his servant. He is the Savior who was sent to us to give us the knowledge of the true God. And so I think that we could look at this verse that where Jesus says this, that life is Jesus and life is God. And, and I don't know how another way that I could put that to get the full meaning of it across. Life is not flesh and blood. Life is not breathing. Life is not the cycle of daily routines. Life is God. And if you miss salvation in Jesus Christ, then you'll never have a taste of what life really is. Everything else is death. Those that don't know Christ are born dead. They die dead. They stay eternally dead, never having experienced what it really feels like to be alive and so we can sum up these first verses of chapter 22 by saying this is the theme or the theme here is life now verse number one and these are areas that we've already covered verse number one talks about the water of life there is a pure river of water of life Now those of us that know Christ realize that the Holy Spirit came to us one time and he showed us how deprived that we were and how depraved that we are and he showed us that we don't have life and he showed us that we're lost in sin and then he put this burning desire into our hearts to get rid of that sin and to lift the burden of sin from us. Now the Bible describes that feeling as hungering and thirsting. And in these opening verses of this chapter, we see the satisfaction of that thirst and the filling of the hungry. And this river of life in heaven is emblematic of salvation in Christ. Thirsting spirits are satisfied by drinking of Christ and receiving eternal life from him. We're washed clean in the pure river of water of life. Uh, This symbolizes the washing of regeneration. This is new life. And there's no one that knows what that's like and knows what that's like until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see how beautiful that Jesus really is. Now to most people, Jesus is nothing more than an historical figure. To some people, he's a swear word. Uh, he's J.C., or he's superstar, or something like that, but they don't know him as the life-giving savior. And it's very, very tragic that so many people miss him and they die without knowing the true God and eternal life. Then, secondly, in the New Jerusalem, there's the tree of life. And verse number 2 speaks of that tree. That tree takes us back into the Old Testament where there was a tree of life that grew in the Garden of Eden. And when Adam sinned, the way to that tree was blocked so that Adam could never eat of the tree of life again. But when we get into heaven, there is no sin, uh, we have there only the spirits of just men that have been made perfect through the blood of Christ. And so the way of life has been opened up again, and there is no fear of eating that tr- of that tree. Now, Adam, if he had eaten of the tree after he had sinned, then he would have been in the bondage of sin forever. He would have lived in a perpetual state upon this earth with a sinful body. But when we get to heaven, it won't be like that because there is no sin. And so that way to the tree of life is opened up again. Now, how God uses that tree, we really don't know. I mean, I I don't know. I can't tell you if it's absolutely necessary that we must eat of this tree in order to sustain eternal life. I have no idea. But I do know this, that thirst is the symbol that we have of the water of life, and that is satisfied thirsting after Christ, thirsting after our salvation. The hungering after salvation is symbolized in this tree of life that's in heaven, and that also is taken away. And then we move on into verses 3 and 4, and here we find the blessing of life. Now let me take you back to that verse in 1 Kings again. 1 Kings 10, verse 8, Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Heaven is a place of worship. It's a place of service. In heaven, our disposition is completely reversed. Before we came to know Christ, we were the servants of sin. We were in bondage to sin. But then when we came to him, that bondage of sin was broken so that sin no longer rules over us. Now, you're a Christian. Most of you here tonight, I hope all of you are, are believers in Jesus Christ. You know that sin does not rule over you anymore. But you also know this. It sure does like to give you orders. It still wants to push you around. It still wants to, uh, you to follow in its footsteps. Well, when we came to know Christ, we got rid of that bondage of sin. We got rid of the guilt of sin. That's been taken away from us. We don't stand any longer condemned because of our sins but we're still in this physical body, and those last vestiges of sin have not yet been rooted out. And until we get rid of the physical body, until this corruption puts on incorruption, or as and also as Paul says it, until this mortal puts on immortality, then we're always going to be plagued by this problem of sin in our mortal bodies. Paul describes that as a constant struggle. From the day that we're saved until the day that we die, that struggle goes on, and I would dare say that there are members of Berean Baptist Church tonight that are in that struggle. Their flesh is fly- fighting against the Spirit, and they've given in to that, and that's why they're doing something else tonight instead of being here and listening to God's Word and learning from it. But when we get into heaven, the battle is over. That, the flesh is forever defeated. We are in our glorified bodies. We have a body that's been made like the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what that body is? That is a sinless body. It's an eternal body. It's a body that has been fitted for life in heaven. And so what a blessing it's going to be to us to be done with a curse of sin forever. And so in heaven, we're going to serve God perfectly. And there is no greater happiness for man than he would serve God perfectly because that is what life was intended to be. Now, I hope after all these years of hearing the Word of God taught from this pulpit that you very well understand by now what God intended for man. I often bring this up, but the Westminster Catechism explains this. The very first question of the Catechism asks, What is the chief end of man? And the answer to the question, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And isn't that what heaven is? When we get to heaven, this is where we achieve God's goal for us. We glorify him and we enjoy him forever. A few weeks ago on Wednesday night, I asked a, a question. I was getting preparing for this uh, series of sermons that we're teaching in Matthew chapter 12, um, where Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and Jesus is the selected servant and so on. And I asked the question, I said, do you know the real reason that Jesus was crucified. Now, that question might not have been as clear as I intended it to be, and my intent concerned the personal reasons. What was it personally to the people that caused them to want to crucify Jesus? Well, I didn't make that quite clear, but I'm not saying I was unhappy with the answers. Uh, Charlotte raised her hand, and she said, he was crucified to glorify God. And then after the service, Kathy came up to me, and she said, He was crucified so that we could go free. And those were really great answers, I thought. And you really don't know how it thrills a a pastor's heart to have people automatically respond to a question like this and say, well, it must have happened for the glory of God. It must have happened for this reason. It glorifies God. Now what that means is that the teaching that we have here is sinking down into your soul so that you understand that God is sovereign, that ultimately it's God that brings all things to pass for his own glory. And that really puts a different perspective on everything, doesn't it? And there are people that have been saved for years that come to me, have come to me and said, you know, we've never been taught that before. We've never been taught. The glory of God has never been made the focus of ministry. And we talk about a lot of different things, a lot of things we do in the church, a lot of work that goes on here. But to concentrate wholly and specifically on the reason why we're here, why we have been created, why we're even in a place like this, is for the glory of God. And I think it's a travesty that that is not taught in many churches today, that they don't focus their ministries on this one central issue, that God is at the center of all preaching because all glory goes to him. So I say it is a travesty. The chief end of man is to glorify God, which says a whole lot about God's glory, doesn't it? It really does. In heaven... God's glory is paramount, and so the blessing of life is that man finally reaches his chief end, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, there's one other part that I want to consider tonight, and then you might feel, well, that first part, that was just too much review, but I intended it to be that way so that we could end up this short series about life in the New Jerusalem by summarizing those points, but there is one more that I want to give you tonight. We come to the last point that I want to make on these first five verses, and that is the light of life. Revelation 22, verse 5 says, And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. What does light symbolize in Scripture? Well, there are a few answers that we could give to that question. In our study of 1 John, we looked at this extensively because John's approach to light in 1 John is that light represents knowledge. Light represents the revelation of who Jesus is so that those who know about Christ and believe in him are said to be enlightened. Light, of course, is contrasted to darkness, John talks about walking in the light. And walking in the light is what those that have eternal life do. They walk in the knowledge of Christ. They obey his commandments because they've been given life. They've been born again. They are the children of God, and that is life. So he contrasts this light to darkness. And you take everything that I've just said about light, and you turn that around, and you have the Bible's description of darkness. Light is knowledge. Darkness is ignorance darkness is the ignorance of who christ is darkness is when you take god's name in vain and when he's not anything more to you than jc or the superstar darkness is the natural condition of man's heart or every person's heart if you like to don't want me to use my gender specific words throw out man and put people in there but that's what all people are in they are in uh, the darkness of of not knowing about christ Now, I was talking to someone just a few days ago, and this person said to me, I want to know more about Jesus. I really don't know anything about him. And you know, there are actually people in America, far more than you would think, that don't know anything about Jesus. Now, we would think that ignorance of Christ is confined to somebody that's in a jungle somewhere, or they're behind the Iron Curtain of communism, or perhaps they're stuck in the... Uh, backwardness of seventh century islam and so therefore they don't know anything about jesus but right here in america there are people that know nothing at all about christ and it might surprise you that in churches in many churches there are people that know nothing about christ because what they have there is a fantasy jesus they have a sugar daddy jesus they have some idea about him that's not really biblical at all and they are still in darkness in fact, that darkness might be the worst type of darkness that there is. And we discussed this a little bit this morning in our Sunday morning forum class. Who are the hardest people to bring out of darkness? Well, there are people that think that they're already living in the light. You think about how hard that it is for us to reach Roman Catholics. Why is it so hard? Because they're convinced that they're already in the light. When in fact Satan has put a veil over their hearts that, that is so thick that even a pinhead of light usually can't penetrate it. And so it's much easier for us to talk with people that would say, well, I don't know anything at all about Jesus, than one who says, I know all there is to know about Jesus. But then they have a false idea about him. So light is life, darkness is death. Life is, light is eternal life, and darkness is eternal death. Jude has some vivid images for eternal death. He says that those without Christ are raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Darkness is disobedience to God. John said that those that walk in darkness and disobey Christ's commandments, and yet they still say, we know Christ. John said, they're liars. They're still in the dark. Darkness is spiritual death, and darkness is what all people are in that have not been given life through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, those who have not believed in him and been born again. So darkness and light are contrasted. All the darkness is, light is not, and light and darkness never mix. And then there are just a couple of other images for darkness that you might note. Lazy Christians are said to be sleeping. When do you sleep? Sleep in the night, don't you? This is what Paul says in first Thessalonians five. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober, for they that sleep sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And then there's another interesting image in 1 Corinthians 13:12. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. So even when we have knowledge of of Christ in this life, we don't actually know all there is to know about him. So we're still dim. We're still looking through a smoked glass, as it were. There's still some darkness, in a sense, in our understanding. Now, since we have all this symbolism in Scripture about darkness and, and what we have about light, what would you expect that you would find in heaven, in the New Jerusalem? I mean, do you think that there would be any kind of reminder there about the darkness that we were in? I mean, will there be any darkness in heaven? Will there be any night there? Well, we have the answer to that. And there shall be no night there, for the Lord God giveth them light. And where does that light come from? It comes from the radiance of God himself. It comes from his transcendent glory that's manifested in light, and that light fills heaven forever. And that light never goes out. It never goes dim. There any such thing as a rolling blackout in heaven. There's light there all of the time. And so once God turns on that light, everything is bathed in light, so there's never a shadow. Do you ever think about this? You can't cast a shadow in heaven. Light is above you, beneath you, beside you, around you, everywhere there's light. There is no darkness at all in heaven. So darkness being gone represents that everything that relates to this old creation is also gone. Now let me mention just a couple of observations about verse number five and we'll be through. First of all is the energy of worship. The energy of worship. Why did God give us night? I mean, why don't we all just sleep in the daytime? Or why, 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 why do we need the night? Well, we, we use the night for sleep. I mean, that, that's how God designed our bodies. And if you try to sleep in the day, most people that do that don't have real great success at it uh it's hard to get accustomed to if you are asked to take a night shift at work and you've been used to working in the day you can really get messed up I mean it just turns you all inside out and you can't you can't really function very well and you're really totally miserable night is for sleeping night was designed for rest for our bodies and so we sleep at night well what about in heaven Well, I ran across an interesting comment by one commentator, and I I totally do not believe what he says about this. Uh, I have mentioned J.A. Seiss often in our study of Revelation over these last three years or so. He's a very good commentator, but he says something about this that I totally do not believe. And uh, he's a great commentator, but he was human, and he was fallible, and to be fair, he did the best that he could, and I don't fault him because... We don't see eye to eye on everything that he says. Now, I know most of you in here, you think that I'm right as rain, and you have the utmost confidence that I do know everything. And that's my fantasy, and I dream about that at night. Um, But J.A. Sise says this about the new earth. He says that there will still be day and night. And his reasoning for that was since Adam needed to sleep while he was still in innocence when there was no sin, that when we are returned to a state of innocence like Adam was, that we'll still need to sleep. But I don't see it that way. As I see it in this recreated universe, the new heaven and the new earth, all of that is going to be showered with the sunlight of God's glory. Nobody will need to sleep. We won't need any rest. We're all going to be bundles of energy. And so we're going to be spiritual energizer bunnies. I mean, we're always going to be worshiping and worshiping, always glorifying and glorifying, always praising and praising and singing and singing constantly. That's what we're going to be doing because God has fitted our bodies to do the very thing that he designed us to do. And what is it? Glorify Him, yes, worship Him. And God has given us a body fitted to do that. And so that's what we're going to spend all of our time doing. So there is no night there, there is only an eternal day. And one last observation we'll make about the verse. The last here is the reign of righteousness. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The Lord God giveth them light. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that statement, but that is one of the many instances in the Scripture that teach us the equality of the the Godhead. Now, doesn't the Bible say about Jesus that he is light? And doesn't it say that he's the light of the world and he is the light of men? And here we find that the very same descriptions are made of God. The fullness of God is light. And then it says, and they shall reign forever and ever. And that's an old, old promise that is finally fulfilled. Daniel said this in the Old Testament, but the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And Jesus said in the third chapter of this, of this book of Revelation, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and had sat down in my father's with my father in his throne, and we 'd have to ask a question: How long is forever? Well, if we take Daniel 7:18 to refer to the millennial kingdom, then forever has limitations, doesn't it? If that's all that it refers to, then forever would be 1,000 years. And so if God said, well, I'm going to give you eternal life, and your eternal life will last until you commit another sin, it'll last until you backslide, then what would that mean? Well, it means that eternal life has a cap on it. But eternal life has a lifetime warranty, and that's because as long as Christ lives, you live. Once you, once you put your faith in Christ, he gives you eternal life immediately. As long as he lives, you live. And folks, Christ does not have an expiration date. Forever has no limitations. Eternal life is not capped. Now, what we find here in the book of Revelation is, the, is, the, is this final state of man. I mean, from Adam in Genesis at the creation all the way through the history of the world, the human race has been going through steps. The human race has been progressing. And the state that we're in has never been finalized. Civilizations grow, technology increases, human understanding advances. And so, uh, after all these thousands of years, we're still waiting to get to some kind of stabilization, some final state that man will be in. You go back a thousand years and you find that people were still trying to figure out where the moon is. And they would never even have dreamed that anybody would one day walk on the moon. So things are changing all of the time. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And after all of these thousands of years, man has not realized that stabilization. So there hasn't been any time that we've just leveled out and then things continue as they are from now on. But here in the book of Revelation, we find the final state of man. When we get through with this, there is no more revelation because there's nothing left to be revealed. Now, if I was someone that would speculate and say that since God is not limited and that God may decide that he will create again, and if I was somebody who believed in science fiction, to me at least, parallel universes, And I would say, well, well, this, this life here that we're living is just one of many creations that God has. This is just one of the many cycles that God has gone through. But that hasn't been revealed, hasn't it? Now, as I look at it, our minds are too puny to fathom what's here, much less to imagine that there could be more. And so, if God does this, if he has other creations and all these other things, I plead for God not to tell me about it. Because once I've mastered heaven... Once I get the other half that hasn't been told, I don't want to know anymore. This has been too much already. So don't tell me about it. But if there is more, I do know this. I have the promise that no matter what happens anywhere else, no matter what else God might have done, if you want to fantasize about that, I still know who God is and that God has made this promise that I will reign with him forever and forever, no matter what else happens. I'm going to reign with God forever and forever. That's his promise. That's what eternal life is, and that is what heaven is. It's that final stabilization where we are with God in the eternal state that never changes, and we reach the place where God intended us to be, full life in knowing Jesus Christ, having our life in him. That's the ultimate, and there is nothing beyond that. And you could never even imagine that you would ever want anything beyond that beyond our wildest imagination that's what heaven is like life in the new jerusalem what a wonderful thing that's going to be for the people of god let's pray heavenly father we do thank you for this wonderful book of revelation and what it tells us about jesus christ His coming again about heaven and what that's going to be like We can't, as I've said tonight, we can't imagine what that's going to be, and we're just waiting to see, well, perhaps not even the other half that will be told, but we've only got just a very, very, very small idea of what heaven is. We have much, much more left for us to discover. Lord, I do pray that everyone here knows you as Savior. We haven't talked much about the other side of this, the consequences of not knowing you as Savior. And that's already been made clear to us in the previous chapters. Uh, Here we're beyond the point of where God has dealt with people that, that don't know Jesus Christ. And there is a place reserved for them as well, an eternal hell where the fire burns without ever being quenched. Lord, I just pray that you would open up the eyes of people so they would be enlightened to understand who Jesus is and understand what true life is, eternal life is Jesus Christ. Eternal life is our God. Bless our people, Lord, and we just thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.